You know, sometimes we all need a word of encouragement, don't we? Don't we? Times get hard. Tough decisions have to be made. And we sometimes don't know which way we should go. And we, we really just need to have someone come along and give us a word of encouragement. We just need that, don't we, at times? When it gets real hard, especially, we need someone to come and lift us up by a word of encouragement. Just like this lady needed a word of encouragement. Husband and wife were getting ready for bed one night, and the wife is standing in front of a full-length mirror, taking a hard look at herself. You know, dear, she says, I look in the mirror, and I see an old woman. My face is all wrinkled. My hair is gray. My shoulders are hunched over. She said, I've got fat legs, and my arms are all flabby. She turns to her husband and she says, Would you tell me one positive thing about me that will make me feel better? Come on, give me a word of encouragement that will make me feel better. So he thought for a long time, as a good husband should do, before answering quickly what a question of a wife is. And then with a soft, thoughtful voice, he said, Well, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> It said the funeral services were held that following Saturday. <laughs> That's not the encouragement she needed. And we're going to see in the text today that John, the Apostle John, has been exiled, banished to a horrible place. It's an island of punishment. And on this banished or horrible island, John needs a word of encouragement. He needs to hear from God. And I think many of us have been in that place before where we just need to hear from God. We need God to speak to us, to speak to our hearts. We need a word of encouragement. He was probably forced to work beyond what his aged body could actually endure. God is so great that he not only gives John a word of encouragement here, he does something, he goes beyond that. If you remember now, the Revelation was written right around 96 to 98 A.D., Jesus died right around 30 A.D. So we're looking at over 60 years since John has seen the one whom he leaned on at the Last Supper. It's been over 60 years since John has seen the one where he stood at the foot of the cross and looked up at the beaten and bloody Jesus as they crucified him. It had been 60 years since he'd seen his closest friend not only does John get a word of encouragement, he gets to see Jesus. You can imagine how his heart soared, as we'll see this morning. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Revelation chapter 1. We are trying to try to finish out the rest of the chapter here, 9 through 20. The optative word is try. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a pew Bible in front of you that you can use. It's page 1,028, so you can follow along. I want you to see that these are God's words, not my words. Your confidence must be in the Word of God, not in the Word of a preacher. You must place your faith in God's Word, not the words of a man. Look at John chapter, uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, starting in verse number 9, and we see, first of all, 9 through 11 is John's exile. John's exile. He's going to tell us where he's at, why he's there, and some attitudes that he holds while being there. Verses 9 through 11. Let me read to you, first of all, verse number 9. I, John, so there's a change of speaker. In verse number 8, God is speaking. 
So John switches now in verse number 9. He himself is now speaking. I, John, your brother and partner in, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God or because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we see here that he first starts off, and I love the way he does this. He says, your brother and partner. Now this was the Apostle John. This is the beloved disciple of John's gospel. This is the one that Jesus loved all of his apostles. This is true. But there seemed to be a special relationship between Jesus and John. A very close relationship. And here he says, I am your brother and partner in this whole thing. Now he could have said, I'm the apostle John. Listen up. I'm the one that leaned against the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. You listen to what I have to say. He could have come with this arrogant, on some of the top-down mentality, but he doesn't. He comes from this mentality that we are all on the same level as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's not one that's better than the other. We all come the same way to God. That's by the foot of the cross. We're brothers and partners in this whole thing. I love his humble attitude. I mean, all leaders of, of, of the ministry have that attitude. He doesn't focus on his apostleship, but he focuses on the fact that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're partners in this whole thing. There are three things he mentions here in verse number 9. He says, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance that are in Jesus. The source or, the, or what, where they're at is in Jesus. So the word tribulation is simply means a partaker with the, with the sufferings of Christ. That he suffered, you remember the story I told you last week or two weeks ago? It is said by tradition that the Apostle John was placed in a boiling cauldron or vat of oil to kill him. They were so peeved at his ministry that they wanted to kill him, the Roman authorities. So they threw him into this boiling oil and apparently it tipped over or he went in, whatever the case, God protected him. There was no burn marks on his body, kind of like the three in the fiery furnace in the Old Testament. No smell of smoke, no fire on their clothing. So that's what it was here. John didn't get hurt. So he is understanding what sufferings for Christ is all about. He says it's tribulation. And it's also said a kingdom. We saw that in verse number 6. That Jesus has made us a kingdom. We are in his rule. He is our sovereign. He is our king. And we are in his kingdom as subjects. And then the word comes patient endurance or endurance or patience some translations say. That's how Jesus responded when Suffering came his way. He was a patient endurer. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This patient endurance is how Jesus responded to suffering. That's how he responded. But to wrap all these three up, tribulation, kingdom, and patience, you could say it like this. These are all in Jesus. What we experience as believers in Jesus, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance, you could say it like this. The whole life of a Christian, whether he suffers or reigns or waits, is in union with the life of the incarnate Son. It's all about Jesus. And whether we are suffering whether we are waiting, whether we are reigning in this kingdom, it's all because we are in union with Jesus Christ. Now, where is this island, Patmos? Where is it located at? Well, it's an island of about 30 to 45 miles in circumference. It's kind of in a crescent shape. 
And we're told that this probably took place on the lower half of the crescent at the very bottom. So the island itself was 30 to 45 miles in circumference, and it was located about 50 miles southwest of ancient Ephesus. That's where he had his ministry. So he wasn't very far, really, from where his ministry was at. Now, the island itself was a prison. They put all the prisoners there, and I guess they just let them duke it out. I'm sure there must have been guards, but the prisoners were there. was an island prison. And most likely, John was forced to work while he was on this island. He wasn't exempt from this because he was banished there because they hated his work and ministry for Jesus Christ. They were forced to work in granite quarries, or they were forced to work then in the mines that were there. Now, according to Eusebius, who was a historian, he tells us, and he wrote about... Oh, I shouldn't say because I can't remember, but before the 5th century, Eusebius wrote, he said, John was banished to Potmos by the emperor Domitian, which puts it later. Domitian was the emperor until 98. And following the death of this emperor, was recalled by the Senate, and he left Potmos and went to Ephesus. So he was on the island by order of Domitian, the emperor of Rome, and then once he died, he was released and went back to Ephesus. Clement of Alexandria, who was a church leader in the 2nd and early 3rd century, he said that John was recalled from banishment to Potmos upon the death of the tyrant. He doesn't give us the name of the emperor at the time. He calls him the tyrant. So whatever the case is, we are told that John was there because on account of the word of God, God's word, and the testimony of Jesus. So apparently his preaching ministry in Ephesus and the surrounding areas must have thoroughly aggravated the Roman the Roman authorities. So much so that they banished him to this island. They didn't want him around. He was turning the world upside down. Thoughts and attitudes and worldviews were changing because of this Jesus that he preached. Now, I, I ran across this question when I was preparing this. Maybe you have this question too. Here's John the Apostle. One that was very close to Jesus. At the foot of the cross when Jesus died. As a matter of fact, Jesus gave, gave John the responsibility of taking care of his mother. Mary. Here's the Apostle John that is doing what God asked him to do, who is being faithful to what God called him to do. And the question I had was this. Why did God allow him to be banished and suffer on this island at the hand of the tyrant? Why? I mean, let's be honest. God could have given him the revelation in the city of Ephesus. He didn't have to have, Potmos wasn't some special place that only Revelation came at. He could have gave it to him at Ephesus. Why did he send him to this island? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. I've got some thoughts of my own. Perhaps, perhaps this is the reason. Thinking of myself in John's place, perhaps this is the reason. To prepare John to receive the Revelation. You see, he had such an active ministry that he was busy all the time. He was going to this city, going to this city, preaching here, preaching there, ministry there, discipling there, baptizing there. He was so busy with ministry, maybe God needed to set him aside for a time to prepare him to receive the revelation. Perhaps. Or to give him time to write it. Being so busy in ministry, he didn't have time. We don't know how long it took to get this revelation. Could have been minutes. Spirit of God can do great things. Could have been days. I don't know how long it took to get this revelation. I do know there are 22 chapters. It must have taken him a while to write it down. So he needed time. Maybe that's why. Or perhaps just to have John's undivided attention. Perhaps. Thinking of myself or thinking of yourself, Christians, you know, sometimes, sometimes we complain when it seems God sets us aside for a while. We say, wait a second, God, I've been faithful. I've been doing what you asked me to do. I've been, I've been obedient. 
Why have you set me aside for a while? Why? We don't understand why we're suffering in a certain circumstance. And we seem to be forgotten by God. God, why am I on Patmos? A barren island that's a prison. Why? And we start complaining. I have a suggestion. Instead of complaining, look around and see what God's trying to communicate to you. Maybe He wants your attention about something. Up the two together. All we know is this is something that wasn't natural for John to receive. It was something that the Spirit of God, either through a trance or through divine inspiration, gave to John. He was in the Spirit. It wasn't a natural thing. It wasn't of man. It wasn't his own reasoning. But the Spirit of the living God gave this to him. He was in the Spirit. And the second phrase we see is the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. What exactly is the Lord's Day? Well, we need to be careful not to confuse this with the Day of the Lord. We read about the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament and the Day of the Lord in the New Testament. And every time that phrase is used, the Day of the Lord, it's always associated with judgment in both the Old and the New Testament. So we, it's not the same phrase as the Day of the Lord. It's called the Lord's Day. As a matter of fact, the word Lord in the text is actually an adjective. So it's describing the word day. So it's the Lord's Day. And that word, Lord, is only used one other time in the New Testament talking about the Lord's Supper. So this is the supper that belongs to the Lord. So this is the day that belongs to the Lord. Now you notice John uses like or as as comparisons. He says that I heard, uh, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. It was like a trumpet. It was loud. It was piercing. But it wasn't a trumpet. He uses these as metaphors, as pictures. But back to this idea of the Lord's Day. Because it is an adjective describing the Lord's Day, it was then in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century and on later than that, always was a description of Sunday. The Lord's Day. This is a day that belongs to the Lord. Now, I don't know why we do this as human beings, but we do this. For some reason, we think, all right, weekends are mine. Huh? Monday through Friday, my employer has me, but the weekends are mine. And what do we do? We start scheduling things to fill our weekends up, right? We want to use the time the best of our ability. But the text tells us, and also experience tells us, that Sunday is the Lord's Day. This is a day that belongs to the Lord. And so whatever schedule that we schedule, we should schedule in first and foremost the Lord on Sunday. Everything else can flow around the Lord, but we must schedule first God on His day. For it is the Lord's day. This idea of this trumpet sounding trill and loud and piercing, it kind of reminds us of the appearance of God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. We read in Exodus 19... Exodus 19 and verse number 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Woo! So that all the people in the camp trembled. It was so piercing. It was so, so loud that they, what is that? And that's what this, this voice was like. It was a voice like a loud trumpet. Let me read verse number 11. This is what the voice said, verse 11, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. 
So write what you see is what the voice told him. Write what you see in a book. Now you know they wrote in scrolls in those days. It wasn't like we have a book here that goes page paper. It was a scroll. And some have guessed that the scroll that John wrote on when he was completely finished with the revelation was at least 15 feet long. So he's writing in a book, in a scroll. He's writing this down. He says, write what you see. John wanted to make sure that we understand the message that he has did not come from him. He's not the author of it. He's writing what he saw and what he heard. So he wants to make sure that we understand God is the author of this. This is what's given to him. He's just mediating to us. And then we see we are told he's told to write and to send it. So that's the first mention of John's commission. God told him to do something with what he wrote. And for the first time now, we have the designation, the destinations of where the revelation is to go. These seven churches are listed right here. And the churches are listed in a clockwise order. It's a normal mail route. If you were to take mail to these large cities, you would start up at the top and work your way down. It's a, and it's actually start over here about 10, uh, 10 o'clock position and work your way down this direction. It's all in a clockwise position. The church is listed right here. Verses 12 through 16 show us John's vision. What did he see? We are told now he heard a loud voice, and the voice was saying to him. Now verse number 12, read number 12. Then, that's a narrative, after, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So you can, the first part of this, this voice is speaking behind him. He doesn't turn yet. The voice is speaking behind him and he hears it like a trumpet and it says these words in verse number 11. And after it says these words, then he turns around to see the voice. How do you see a voice? It's okay to ask questions about the Bible. How do you see a voice? You can see a person. You can see a tree. How do you see a voice? As Jack said, I turn to see the voice. Well, maybe it's the power of sight that resides in the soul, or perhaps it simply means that he turned to see the source of the voice. Whatever the case was, it's booming behind him. Now he turns to see the source of the voice. And on turning, the first thing he saw were seven golden lampstands. He didn't even see the person of Jesus Christ. He saw the lampstands first. That word in the Old Testament is a menorah. Now, we need to be careful and not to confuse it with the seven-branched menorah. You've seen those before. They branch out like this, like this, like this, and one in the center. There are seven branches. These golden lampstands are different. They have only one bowl on top. It's one golden lampstand with a bowl on the top that's filled with oil. The oil then was ignited by some sort of a wick, and then it was burning to give light. It was a lampstand. Not a menorah in the seven-branched one, but a menorah in the single-branched one. So it was just like a, 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 a bowl with oil atop burning. What's interesting here, in verse number 13, he said, And in the midst of the lampstands, these golden lampstands that were burning, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So the placement of the lampstands uh, is truly significant in this in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, they would place the lampstands in particular places on purpose. It spoke about something. For the placement of the lampstands is significant. In the Jewish temple, the menorahs were placed so that they would burn before the Lord. Sorry about that. For those who are filling in the blanks. The placement of the lampstands, they were to burn before the Lord. So placing these lampstands, when it says, the one like the Son of Man, 
is in the midst of these lampstands. All these lampstands are forming around the Son of Man. The one that's standing right there is in the midst of them. And the placement of the lampstands is extremely important. For we read in the Old Testament in Leviticus about these lampstands in the temple. It says, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Three times the word regularly is used, and the placement of the lampstands are extremely important. They were always before the Lord. And in the Old Testament, that's Jehovah, Yahweh. Here they're placed around the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? We're about ready to find out exactly who these are. These lampstands were obviously placed to burn before the exalted Christ. For the phrase, one like the Son of Man, immediately in a Jewish mind, they would think of Daniel chapter 7. That phrase, one like the Son of Man. Oh yeah, I remember reading about that before. That was, that was Daniel. Yeah, Daniel chapter 7. So immediately they would think of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, with this title, one like the Son of Man. For Daniel said... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So in this Daniel passage, the son of man is distinguished from the Ancient of Days as two separate figures. But in this passage right here, in this passage, the son of man is described as being identical with the Ancient of Days. For we read on, it's going to explain the Ancient of Days is described just like this in Daniel's book. So the Son of Man is in identical with the Ancient of Days. Now the garments we're told he's wearing is a robe, just a robe, a long robe that flowed down to the ground, and a golden sash. Now normally you would take the sash, ladies, this is not like some scarf that you wrap around your neck with a little brooch and everything, it's not like that. You would take the sash and you would wrap it around your waist and it would tie tight like a belt. That's what the priests did in the temple. They would take the sash, tie it tight like a belt right around the waist. But I want you to notice where this golden sash is at. It's on his chest. It's not around his waist. It's on his chest. So some would say these are priestly garments. Eh, they do describe some of them, but more than likely, these garments are the garments of a judge, with the golden sash representing his authority to pass judgment, because he is the only one who can truly judge, God himself. So this is more than likely the, the garments of a judge that's about ready to pass judgment. Look at verse number 14. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Oh, this is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. Again, the idea of the Ancient of Days. Listen, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So the Jewish mind automatically would think, oh, that's Daniel's prophecy. The Ancient of Days. Yeah, I remember the picture in Daniel. This idea of eyes, a flame of fire, speaks of perfect knowledge, infallible insight, inescapable scrutiny. He has perfect knowledge about us. He knows where each and every one of us are at every minute and every second of the day. He knows the thoughts that run around our hearts and our minds. He can read into us. He has great insight, perfect insight. We cannot escape his scrutiny. He looks on his children. Verse number 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So his feet here, now what's interesting, are he's not wearing any shoes. See any shoes in that text? His feet were barefoot. And the priests that were officiating in the tabernacle and temple, they also wear no shoes. So that's kind of like a priestly office. This burnished bronze is the idea of shiny and spectacular, and, and it's idea that it's still glowing, like it came right out of the furnace, still glowing. It speaks of stability and strength and judgment that the Son of Man comes to bring. If you remember, you remember the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament? First of all, you had the gate, where you had the gate there, and then you came in and you had the, the, the um, altar that was made out of bronze. Then following that, you had a, a, a lever that you washed it, and then it went to golden items in the inside of the, the building, and then the most inner sanction was also golden items. It started off with bronze on the outside, and bronze then became a symbol of judgment. For to enter into God's presence, there must first be a sacrifice. For the worshiper in the Old Testament to enter into God's presence, there first must be an animal sacrifice brought on this altar, this bronze altar. And then a person may enter into the presence of God. And for us today to enter into the presence of God, there is still a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is the blood of Jesus Christ that allows us to enter into God's presence. So this bronze speaks of, of, of judgment that's coming. And what's interesting is we look in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see that Jesus is judging. But I want you to notice what he's judging. The churches. He's scrutinizing his people. Judgment must begin in the house of God. He's looking at his people. You may call it discipline. You may call it chastisement. I'm going to use the word judgment. He's looking at his churches and say, churches, are you doing what I ask you to do? People within that church, are you being obedient to my revelation? Chapters 2 and 3, he's judging the churches. Then you go to chapter 6 and following. 4 and 5 is kind of an uh, introduction to 6 and following. And 6 and following, he's judging the world of rebellious humanity that's living in unbelief. The judgment switches from the church to the world after chapter 6. His voice then is a phrase that reminds us of Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel said in chapter 43, verse 2, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Look at verse number 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now the great thing is here, we don't have to try to guess what the seven stars are. He interprets it for us in verse number 20. He tells us exactly what they are. We don't have to guess. But what's interesting is he holds these seven stars, which are the seven angels, the seven messengers of the churches. He holds them in his right hand, indicating power and authority. That's his people, his messengers over the churches. He holds them in his right hand. And this sword that we see here, in this, this sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, it's not the short Roman sword. The short Roman sword was used to jab. This is the idea of a long, broadsword that with one strike, it would kill. Not the short one, but the one that has power and authority. A sharp two-edged sword. And each time this idea of a sharp two-edged sword coming from Christ, not four times in the Revelation, it's always in reference to judgment that Christ is bringing when he comes. The sword proceeds out of his mouth. Mouth of Christ is probably a metaphor to his tongue. I, the, the words of judgment that he speaks, like a, like a mighty sword 
that strikes down the opponents. It could reference back to Isaiah chapter 11 where this branch, this branch in the millennial kingdom, speaks words of judgment. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. That's the Messiah. And he shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It's judgment that he's coming to give. First to his churches, then to the world. He's coming not again to be savior, but to be judge. Face like the sun is a picture of holiness, divinity, or excellence that we see in him. Kind of reminds you of the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Again, like as. He wasn't the sun. He was like the sun, as bright as the sun. Now, I'm finding myself in the same place I was in the first service. And that is, I'm out of time. So I'm going to work quickly. I'm going to leave the last point alone. If you need answers to the fill-ins, I can give them to you later. I can't, at this point, go on any further for time's sake. But I will just read through the verses and comment briefly as I'm reading through these last Four verses, 17 through 20, John's commission. Let me read. John said, when I saw him, now this is this one he loved, Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He fainted. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, the hand of comfort. The one that holds the seven stars in his hand, laid his hand on him to comfort him. Fear not. I am the first and the last reference to God in the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yahweh, and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am this existing one, the self-existing one. I live forever. I am exalted at the right hand of the Father. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have power and authority over death and Hades now. Verse number 19 is the key to the revelation. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven golden lampstands are the churches, and the stars are his messengers, or we will see, or we would have seen, his pastors. Not literally angels, but pastors, ministers, messengers that are over these churches. You know, it's a great comfort to think God himself holds me, the pastor of this church, in his right hand. What a great comfort. It also frightens me to death. You know why? As I read chapters 2 and 3, the pastor was always held responsible for how the church lived out their faith. That scares me on one side. Comforts me to know I'm in his hand. It scares me on the other side because I'm responsible how you live out your faith. The lampstands are the churches. The lamp is simply something that gives light and darkness. You see the metaphor. You see the picture. You don't need to have any explanation on that. Jesus stands in the midst of his churches today. He is here right now. This is his church. It's not medical aid community church. It's not my church. It's his church. We are part of his church. And he's here today in the midst of us. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is here today. Let me ask you some questions. How do you think we're doing as a church? I mean, if we're to lamp, we're to light the dark world, how are we doing as a church? Are we really being obedient to the one who holds us in his hand? 
He's going to come speak words of judgment against some of these churches. Two are exempt. The other ones, other five, receive judgment. How are we doing? Are we being the light that he wants us to be? Have we so been caught up in the love of God, which God is love, have we forgot that God is coming again in judgment to judge this world? And that all who stand outside of Jesus Christ will fall under God's wrath and judgment, and that they need to be in Jesus Christ, they need to have faith in Jesus Christ? Do we see him as a coming judge who will sit in judgment of rebellious humanity? Or is he some loving heavenly grandfather in the sky? And a more serious question is, do we even care? How are we doing as a church? We have to answer to the one who holds us in his right hand. As the worship team is coming, let me ask you personally. I ask us as a church, now let me ask you personally. How do you think you're doing as a Christian? Where are you now from where you were last year? Are you being obedient to the one who freed you by his blood? Are you being the light God wants you to be in your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your family? Do you care about the thousands in Medical Lake in the West Plains area that don't know Jesus Christ as Savior? And all those questions are for me as well. Do I really care? Do I care? As we come into a time of response to how you would like to respond to God, maybe you just need to pray. You can come up here and pray. You can pray right here in the front. You can pray where you're standing. You don't have to come up front. But maybe it's time to say, you know, God, I don't care anymore. You know, God, I want to be obedient, but I haven't been. And you know, God, I want to be a light to a dark world, but I'm not. But from this day forward, I'm going to be. Maybe you just need to pray. I need to pray. We need to pray as a church. That when we stand before God as the medical aid community church body, that we can stand with our heads held high saying, by the power of your spirit, Jesus, we did everything you asked us to.